Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Cooper Banks. The plague of violent crime in Peoria remains, but we got an update from Peoria Mayor Rita Ali this past week, which showed how, overall, while it seems like crime is as heavy a burden as it has been, the situation has seen some improvement and progress made over the past year. I want to share some numbers with you um, on the recent gun violence. This is a report that was provided by the police chief to council uh, yesterday via email. And it shows since January 1st through July 18th, yesterday, it shows the number of shooting incidents in, in the city, the number of shooting victims, the number of shooting murders and then all murders. And you will see that compared to this same time last year, that in all those areas, we're down. We're down 35% in shooting incidents. We're down 28% in shooting victims. We're down 27% in shooting murders and 18% down in all murders. That's good that we're down, but there's been a spike here recently, especially in the last three to four weeks. The trend is, is not good. And I wanna say that although there's a case number associated with these victims, these are human beings. These are human beings. Human beings that have families and friends. Most all of them are members of our Peoria community. All of them lost their lives to gun violence in Peoria. It's a crisis. I wanna take it a little bit further to take a look at the demographics. Of the homicides in Peoria this past year, there's been 14. 13 of the 14 are black people. 93% are black people. Now this is, I'm saying something that people don't want to say. People don't like to talk about race. It's a difficult and it's a sensitive subject. But these are the numbers that we can no longer ignore. 93% of the homicides are black people in Peoria. Eight of these are black males and five are black females. The shooting incidents from January 1st through July 18th. 98% of the shooting incidents are black victims. 55 out of 56. 55 out of 56. This is why the black community in Peoria must be engaged. This is why we must listen to their cries for help. This is why the chaos must stop. This is why we must return to the important work. These are the numbers that we cannot ignore 
And this is not just a black problem. This is a community problem. This is a city problem. And it's going to take a committed leadership, a committed city, a commitment of resources to really turn this thing around. Our leadership must be sensitive to issues of race and culture. Our leaders must engage in these discussions and not delegate them. And I'm talking about discussions on race within the city of Peoria. We can no longer delegate these discussions. We have to be a part of them. Politics, personalities, bureaucracy, and what I would call a media frenzy have gotten us away from the original focus of the safety network and really created distractions uh, from the important work that has taken place over, the, over this past year as it relates to gun violence reduction. A year ago this month, um, I assembled a group of individuals at the Peoria Police Department. I had met with then Police Chief Lauren Marion about the rise, significant rise in homicides and who those homicide victims were, who those homicide shooters were, and the impact, the disproportionate impact that it had on a particular community, and that's Peoria's black community. We talked about the numbers, we talked about the, the level of engagement of the black community in terms of community-based solutions. So we discussed forming a network, a network that connects community resources in an effective and efficient way uh, so that one hand knows what the other hand is doing and so that we can be more practical in our approach. So that's where the concept of the safety network was introduced. Um, it's not a program as it's been uh, suggested, but really a framework that brings together numerous programs, that brings together numerous services and groups and individuals that are connected to address issues of violent crime in Peoria, particularly gun violence reduction. So the safety network was formed as a network, a system of connected resources, uh, creating profiles of the various people and organizations, and providing supports. From the beginning, there was a hope to expand the safety network partners to include residents, businesses, housing organizations. I was happy at the last safety network meeting that we had about six or seven members of the Peoria Housing Authority. I was really pleased to see that. From the beginning, there's always been members of the faith-based community, especially those that are within the hotspots or targeted areas of the city. The Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority in 2021 identified the best practices for gun violence reduction, and those include street intervention or interruption type outreach and engagement activities connected community and resources. That's what the safety network is all about. Counseling and therapy, youth development, case management, and data sharing. 
that's another aspect of the safety network. So I want to talk very briefly about the cure violence assessment because there's been a lot of, um, a lot of concern about that. Um, it's something that was brought to the council on May the 24th from the police chief. It was a recommendation brought forth from the police chief who recommended it. Um, he's also been a part of the safety network who had studied it, who had explored it, who had had presentations on it, who had researched it. But it was the police chief's recommendation that actually came to council on May the 24th. The council chose not to um, fund that assessment for, for various reasons, and so we move on from that. There have been several organizations locally that had, have offered to pay for that assessment, several. The Peoria County Board of Health did consider paying for the assessment, and I understand that Cure, Cure Violence has been on their radar for a long time, something that they had researched, had an interest in, and had, I think, as part of their strategic plan. Peoria City Council members, though, still unsure of how to spend $1.2 million in violence prevention money, taking more ideas through the late summer period. Plenty have interpreted Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger's decision to take his seat on the House Select Committee on January 6th and his impending departure from the U.S. House altogether as a planned step down. However, plenty of political observers have noted how Kinzinger continues to take opportunities for FaceTime thanks to the committee and elsewhere, and how his future plans might involve an office in Illinois or perhaps an even higher level elected office in D.C. In any case, Kinzinger is planting his flag in the ground, decrying former President Trump, fellow Republican, as unfit to serve mincing no words and pulling no punches about where he stands for his own part in this week's prime time january 6th committee hearing take a listen left at the recess just after president trump's 224 tweet attacking the vice president by this time the president had been in his dining room for an hour i want you to just think of what you would have done if you were in his shoes and had the power to end the violence you would have immediately and forcefully told the rioters to stop and leave. Like, stop and leave. Done. As you heard, that's exactly what his senior staff had been urging him to do. But he resisted, and he kept resisting for another almost two hours. In the meantime, all the president did was post two tweets. One at 2.38, and the other at 3.13. One said, quote, stay peaceful. The other said, quote, remain peaceful. But the president already knew that the mob was attacking the police and had invaded the Capitol. Neither tweet condemned the violence or told the mob to leave the Capitol and disperse. To appreciate how obvious it was that President Trump was not meeting this moment, it's helpful to look at the real-time reactions of his own son, Don Jr., to the first tweet, 
captured in a series of text messages with Mark Meadows. I'll warn the audience that these messages contain some strong language. As you can see, Don Jr. Don Jr. first texted Mr. Meadows at 2.53. He wrote, he's got to condemn this ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Mr. Meadows replied, I am pushing it hard. I agree. Don Jr. responded, this is one you go to the mattresses on. They will try to f*** his entire legacy if this on this if it gets worse. Here's what Don Jr. told us he meant by go to the mattresses. At 2.58, when you say that, he need, that Mr. Meadows needs to go to the mattresses on this issue, when you say go to the mattresses, what does that mean? It's just a reference for going all in. I think it's a Godfather reference. Sean Hannity agreed, and he also turned to Mark Meadows for help after the president's second tweet. As you can see, Mr. Hannity texted at 3.31 to say Trump needed to deliver a statement to the nation telling the rioters to leave the Capitol. Mr. Meadows responded that he was, quote, on it. Don Jr. and Sean Hannity were not the only ones who implored Mr. Meadows to get the president to speak to the nation and tell the mob to leave, to go home, go home. Throughout the attack, Mr. Meadows received texts from Republican members of Congress, from current and former Trump administration officials, from media personalities, and from friends. Like President Trump's staff, they knew President Trump had to speak publicly to get the mob to stop. Let's look at just a few of these text messages. Fox News personality Laura Ingram said, the president needs to tell the people in the Capitol to go home. Former Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney urged Mark, he needs to stop this now. Fox News personality Brian Kilmeade said, please get him on TV, destroying everything that you guys have accomplished. When we interviewed White House counsel Pat Cipollone, he told us that he knew the president's two tweets were not enough. Let's listen to what he said. I think the question is, did you believe that the tweets were not anything about your advice to the president? No, I believe more needed to be done. Okay. I believed that a public statement needed to be made. When you talk about uh, others on the staff thinking more should be done or thinking that the president needed to tell people to go home, who, who would you put in that category? Well, I, I would put uh, Pat Philbin, Eric Hirschman, um, overall Mark Meadows, um, Ivanka, once Jared got there, Jared, um, General Kellogg. I'm probably missing some, but those are. Kaylee, I think, was was there, but I don't. Dan Scavino. And who on the staff did not want people to leave the Capitol? On the staff? In the White House, how about? I, 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 I can't think of anybody, you know, on that day who didn't want people to get out of the 
the Capitol once the, you know, particularly once the violence started. No. I mean. What about the president? Yeah. <laughs> she said the staff. So I answered. No, I said in the White House. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I thought you said who, who else on the staff. I, I, I can't reveal communications, but obviously I think, you know, yeah. Let's pause on that last statement. Although Pat Cipollone is being careful about executive privilege, there really is no ambiguity about what he said. Almost everybody wanted President Trump to instruct the mob to disperse. President Trump refused. Testimony and evidence is as sobering as it is straightforward. Within minutes of stepping off the ellipse stage, Donald Trump knew about the violent attack on the Capitol. From the comfort of his dining room, he watched on TV as the attack escalated. Whatever your politics, whatever you think about the outcome of the election, We as Americans must all agree on this. Donald Trump's conduct on January 6th was a supreme violation of his oath of office and a complete dereliction of his duty to our nation. It is a stain on our history. It is a dishonor to all those who have sacrificed and died in service of our democracy. When we present our full findings, we will recommend changes to laws and policies to guard against another January 6th. The reason that's imperative is that the forces Donald Trump ignited that day have not gone away. The militant, intolerant ideologies, the militias, the alienation and the disaffection, the weird fantasies and disinformation. They're all still out there, ready to go. That's the elephant in the room. But if January 6th has reminded us of anything, I pray it has reminded us of this. Laws are just words on paper. They mean nothing without public servants dedicated to the rule of law and who are held accountable by a public that believes oath matters, oaths matter more than party tribalism or the cheap thrill of scoring political points. We the people must demand more of our politicians and ourselves. Oaths matter, character matters, truth matters. If we do not renew our faith and commitment to these principles, this great experiment of ours, our shining beacon on a hill, will not endure a monologue on guns and controlling assault weapons in particular u.s senator and democrat tammy duckworth on the floor of the u.s senate last week two-year-old aiden mccarthy was laying bloodied and pinned underneath his unconscious father when he was found just a toddler aiden was still in diapers had somehow lost one shoe and was down to just one blood-soaked sock with scrapes across his body. It was last Monday, July 4th, 
And Aiden was rescued from the site of a massacre, from the site of the latest mass shooting that has marred our country and left scarred all, the, and left scarred all those who bore witness to its senseless terror. I was at a nearby parade in Illinois when I heard about the shooting. I rushed to the emergency operations center and was there the moment the police came in and told us that two Good Samaritans had found this young boy sheltered under his father's body. When Aiden was rescued, he kept asking for his mom and his dad. But tragically, horribly, we later learned that they were never going to be able to comfort him ever again. Both his mother and father were among the seven people murdered during that 4th of July parade shooting in Highland Park. Their names are Irina and Kevin McCarthy. And they, like so many of us, had spent that holiday morning eager to take pride in our country, eager to celebrate the freedom and goodness and greatness that has defined our nation since its first breaths on that first July 4th. I woke up today unable to get the image of two-year-old Aiden's one bloodied sock out of my mind. I woke up, as I have every day since that day, unable to stop thinking about his mom or his dad and put on his diaper that morning, just like I've done thousands of times with my own two little girls. I woke up thinking about how, when the first shots of that military-style rifle rang out, his parents' first thoughts must have been about saving him, shielding him. So today I come to the floor to say their names and the names of the five other victims, my constituents, who should still be breathing at this very moment but aren't. Catherine Goldstein, Jacqueline Sundheim, Stephen Strauss, Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza, Eduardo Uvaldo, and Irina and Kevin McCarthy. There are too many victims of preventable gun violence to name all of them here. In fact, gun violence is the largest killer of children under the age of 16 in this country. Not disease, but the disease of gun violence. It happens in Buffalo, in Chicago, in Uvalde, in Newtown, in Pittsburgh, in DeKalb, in Virginia Beach, in El Paso, in two different auroras in Las Vegas. It happens in wealthy suburban communities, in low-income rural communities, and in urban areas across our nation. It happens everywhere in America, but almost nowhere outside of this country. It happens so much here that we only hear about it in the national news when a large enough number of people are killed at one time and in one place. Think about that. Every time gun violence occurs, someone decides whether or not the number murdered is worthy of column inches and breaking news graphics on TV. And too often the answer is no because there have been more mass shootings thus far in 2022 than there have been days in the year, and because we as a country have grown numb. We witnessed that just last week in Chicago, as over the holiday weekend, Chicago's death toll climbed even higher than the devastation seen in Highland Park. Yet there was no national outcry. In Chicago's communities, gun violence is now viewed as all too common, and kids can no longer be kids, They've all heard too many stories of toddlers and strollers killed by a stray bullet or parents murdered while picking up their own kids from school. But these everyday gun deaths no longer garner the attention they demand. We've become desensitized, even as elementary schoolers' lives are being stolen and survivors' innocence are lost. Every gun death is a tragedy that can and should be prevented. 
This is a uniquely American disease and it requires a national solution. So I'm here on the floor today to plead with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to help keep another toddler from having to cry out for his parents amidst gunshots and terror. To help stop another day of patriotism, another math class, another trip to the grocery store from turning into a living nightmare. I plead with them to help prevent all that by passing the assault weapons ban. Legislation that would block the further sale, transfer, manufacture, and importation of military-style assault weapons and high-capacity magazines for civilian use. I spent 23 years in the Army, so I recognize a weapon of war when I see one. These AR-15-style rifles fire small-caliber ammunition at a, at a velocity that can easily penetrate many kinds of body armor, even at a distance. So when an unprotected child is shot with an AR-15 at close range, the results are horrific. And as anyone who's ever carried an M4 into combat understands, the American people should not be misled into thinking that AR-15 rifles are safe for our communities or that a ban on fully automatic machine guns is sufficient to protect our children from the most dangerous weapons of war. Mass shooters are hunting mothers in malls, fathers in theaters, and children in their schools. For that evil purpose, a semi-automatic rifle is the perfect weapon because it is lightweight, portable, and easy to load with high-capacity magazines. It couples the speed of automatically chambering the next round after each shot with maximum air accuracy, a combination designed to kill as many people as possible, as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible. So the first thing I thought when I heard the audio of last week's tragedy was that it sounded like war. As I was talking, I happened to look outside the window of my older girl's classroom, only to see my younger daughter walking in a line, following behind the other kids in her class, in the middle of a shelter-in-place drill. And I watched as that little row of three and four-year-olds crouched down as small as they could get, and my daughter, with her head against the wall, put her hands over her head, learning to protect herself should there be a mass shooting. She's just four years old. And she was already being taught how to survive if someone with a weapon of war comes into the classroom where she's just beginning to learn her ABCs, believing that their right to fire assault, rapper, assault rifles matters more than her right to make it to age five. What I felt was close to horror, and I know other parents have felt the same. I'm far from the only mom who will hug their kids a little tighter while putting them to bed tonight, then spend hours looking up ballistic backpacks to protect my girls in case the worst case scenario becomes reality. But the, hor the horrible truth is, even ballistic backpacks may not stop these rounds. This week alone, Hundreds of Illinoisans and survivors from other mass shootings were gathered at the Capitol. These people, mostly moms, are still recovering from major trauma. And they have jobs and childcare responsibilities and no experience lobbying Congress. Yet they made the trip to Washington, D.C. because they know that their children's lives depend on it. And because they're beyond furious at the lack of action to ban these weapons of war that have terrorized all of our communities. What these moms want isn't impossible. It wouldn't even be that difficult if some more folks would just grow a conscience. 
These parents want us to do better for them, for their kids, for all those in Highland Park last week, and for every person who has so needlessly lost their life to gun violence, whether in a mass shooting or in a tragedy involving a single bullet. The folks at that parade last Monday were there to celebrate life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Seven of them will never be able to do so again. We have to stop this. We have to end this cycle. And we can take a step forward, a step towards doing so right now by getting these weapons of war off our streets and passing this bill immediately. To anyone who says no, to anyone who objects to passing this bill, I want you to know how you can show off taking pride in our country on a holiday, then turn your back on its citizens one week later. I want you to explain to them why the dollars that you get from the NRA are worth their pain, their tears, their tragedy. He's not so much stepping down as he is stepping aside. That would be Tazewell County State's Attorney Stuart Umholtz, who announced that he would be stepping aside in order to perhaps end up taking a job at a higher place. We caught up with him. WNBD's Will Stevenson caught up with the outgoing prosecutor to find out more about his experience and his plans. For folks who don't know, how long have you been in office as state's attorney and uh, what led you to take the job? I... I've been in office since 1995. Uh, I have people working for me that weren't born then. Um, So I've been here for a while. And uh, I really, um, when my predecessor became a judge, um, I decided that this was an opportunity for me to uh, take on a very challenging responsibility that initially proved to be a lot more challenging than I thought it would be. Yeah. Does it seem like that that's sort of a, I guess when you're an attorney, that it's a different mindset being sort of a being a prosecutor and kind of dealing with county government? And then will it be sort of a different mindset, I guess, presuming you become judge in November? Right. And and the likelihood of becoming a judge is is quite high since I'm the only one running. Um, But I will tell you that I think there's one common thread in being successful in the job that I'm in now and also being successful as a judge, and that is being decisive, being able to make tough decisions under sometimes tough circumstances. And I've had uh, quite a bit of experience with that, and I hope to carry that over to the bench. Yeah, I imagine that especially when it comes time to, let's say, in a bench trial, you find you have to find somebody guilty or you have to impose what could be a maybe potentially lengthy sentence on someone for some particular crime. That's that I, I imagine that's probably a little more difficult than I might think it would be. Uh, it certainly is, and I, I think that it's a heavy responsibility. I know that individuals that have left uh, the office of state's attorney tell me that you don't realize how much weight you have on your shoulders until you walk out of that door and leave that weight with somebody else. Let's talk about the letter uh, you submitted uh, yesterday uh, to the county board. Uh, that that was pretty much um, sort of a timely type of a thing, right? So that you can uh, you can officially uh, have the state's attorney's office on the ballot in November, correct? Yes, that was important for me uh, that it be on the ballot. It's also important. I you know I've spent a long time developing a culture 
in this office of do what is right and do it well. And Kevin Johnson has been a part of that process over the past 27 years. And uh, he's been my chief assistant since 2006. And it was important for me to have a transition plan. I think every business should have a succession plan because we're all replaceable. And I've always viewed myself as being replaceable. And it was important to me to have someone trained and qualified to take over these responsibilities. And as I said in my letter, even more importantly, Kevin Johnson has the good judgment and wisdom to uh, seek justice for our community. What would you talk a little bit more about those attributes that you feel that he has uh, that he has going potentially going into the job aside from the, those years of experience, which are important as it is? Yeah, I think I think you learn a lot. You gain a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge just from making decisions, from reviewing evidence, from making charging decisions. And it's not as simple as just saying that the evidence supports this maximum offense that we could charge. Um, we're not machines here, we're people, and what we're supposed to seek is justice, and justice means that we should seek an appropriate disposition, which means that we have to make good charging decisions that reflect uh, the conduct, that reflect the needs of the community, and also when seeking a disposition, we should have those same considerations in mind to come to a conclusion that supports some sense of justice for our community. So um, we might, most people think of a negotiated plea as being something less than what the person would receive from the judge. But once you calculate the value of certainty, because there's a value that all of us place upon uh, knowing what is going to happen in a case, then, then I think you begin to have a better understanding as to why this is a good way to resolve cases, because it's fair. It, it takes into consideration uh, the value of certainty, and, um, and I think that's what people need to keep in mind when they think about negotiated pleas. And how do you see that uh, kind of that mindset going into a going into becoming a judge? I guess I, I imagine, and I've seen times where you know a, a judge hasn't agreed with a or has rejected a negotiated plea deal and things like that, thinking that maybe something stronger should be done. Uh, I guess that's kind of thinking with the other end of your your brain when you become a judge, right? Right, right. I think that. I think by having served as a state's attorney for the time that I have, I think as a judge, I hope as a judge, I will respect the decisions that are made uh, by the prosecution. I'll, I'll respect and know what goes into the decisions that a defense attorney has made in presenting uh, a negotiated plea to the court, and, and then respect that input, but then realize that I have a role to play as a judge, and I need to make a decision based upon that. But I'm not going to be—I'm not going to disregard what other professionals are recommending in a case. But I'm going to take that into consideration, and then make my own decision. 
I, I don't want to take a lot more of your time here, so I'll kind of uh, wrap up uh, with one more question here. What would you consider to be, in the time you've been a state's attorney, your your biggest accomplishment? I imagine maybe sometimes, you know, a big accomplishment is just trying to keep up with the times at times, right? Right. And, and I will tell you, and I, I'll use a little bit of humor, because that's what has helped me get through 27 years as state's attorney. And I will tell you that... Uh, uh, the first time that I was ever quoted on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, it was when I was informed that I was the first state's attorney in the state of Illinois to prosecute a sitting Supreme Court justice. In fact, he was the chief justice at the time. And my response was, lucky me. And, <laughs> and I wasn't intending to be humorous when I said that, but it was to recognize that we don't look for these cases. Um, any accomplishments that I have made over my 27 years as state's attorney, uh, they're not my individual uh, accomplishments. It's the result of a good team of professionals working together, law enforcement, um, uh, citizens, and, and I've had great prosecutors in this office. So that success is spread amongst all of those individuals. But I think what I learned most about that particular case was about myself and was about the fact that um, I adopted a philosophy that no matter who a person was as a defendant, uh, that they should get the same consideration, no more and no less than any other person that would be faced with that charge. And I've tried to kind of keep that as kind of my mantra in, in uh, being fair to everybody and not giving anybody any special treatment. Is that the advice you would give to Kevin, uh, assuming that he officially becomes state's attorney after November? Yes, definitely. But I'll tell you what, and again, humor is what gets me through this. My advice to Kevin is he needs to have a Kevin. Mm. Because that that's what has allowed me to be successful since 2006. He's been my chief assistant, and I tell you what, He's, he's a great part of the team. One of the best decisions I ever made was selecting him as my chief assistant. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Weekend Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7 Follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at 1470WMBD.com. I'm Cooper Banks, WMBD News.